Section six of Solario the Tailor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hualada. Solario the Tailor by William Bowen. Section six, the fourth night, the rag picker and the princess. The queen said, "Domino," very sweetly, and smiled at the second lady in waiting, who was much chagrined. "I don't see how I could have been so stupid," said the second lady in waiting. "Indeed, my dear," said the queen kindly, "I don't think you were nearly so stupid as usual." At this moment, the princess Darbel, with Prince Bilbo and their son Bojon. And the latter's friend Bodkin came in from the throne room, and the princess Darbel, standing behind the queen's chair, said, "Mother, we are going to hear a story, and Bojon insists that you." "Yes, grandmother," said Bojon. "We are going to ask Sorario for another story, and you must come along too." "Dear me," said the queen, "I must put away the dominoes first." She stacked them neatly in the box, one by one, and when this was done, she rose and Bojon took her arm and led her through the throne room, where the king was engaged at chess with the Lord Chamberlain. My dear," said the queen to the king, "you had better come with us. We are going to." It makes no difference to me," said the king. "You can have the bishop if you want him, but I've got your queen." How do you like that? It's your move. Go on. Why don't you move? It's no use, grandmother," said Bojon. "Come along." They left the king at his game and proceeded to the room of Solario the tailor in the tower. They were admitted by Solario himself. In the center of the room stood Mortimer the executioner. He was wearing an unfinished garment without any sleeves, fastened together with pins and basted with white thread along the seams. He looked extremely foolish. Oh," said Solario, covered with confusion, "pray come in, come in, Her Majesty herself. This is indeed an honor. I will find more shares in the next room. I am overpowered by this honor. Pray be seated, Your Majesty." Mortimer, the fitting is postponed. Pray be seated, Your Majesty. I do not know when I have received the honor of such a visit. Pray be seated, Mortimer. Bring in some chairs. I beg Your Majesty to take the other chair. It is far more comfortable. Mortimer, divest yourself. Divest yourself. Mortimer, red with embarrassment, took off the unfinished garment and put on his old one. Solario ran from chair to chair, assisting each of the party to a seat. We have come for a story," said Prince Bilbo, "and I hope that you'll be so good as to. We want to hear about Montesango's cave," cried Bojon, "or the blind giant." I beg your pardon," said Solario. "Perhaps Her Majesty would deign to ask him for Montesango's cave, Mother," cried Bojon. Dear me," said the queen. "I hardly know what to 
It's a very pleasant room you have here, Serario. Do you ever play dominoes here? Dear me. I'll tell you what I should like," said the princess Darbell. "I should like to hear how the goldsmith's son won the princess. Bojan has been telling us about Alf and the princess Hyla, and I understand there is a story, a love story. You know, I dearly like love stories." "It isn't precisely a love story," said Solario. "But if Her Majesty will permit me, I will." Dear me, yes," said the queen. "A very comfortable room it is, to be sure." Solario, after receiving the queen's permission to be seated, sat himself cross-legged on his table, and all of the otters—Mortimer the executioner, Barkin, Prince Bilbo, Bojan, the Prince Dorabel, and the queen—drew up their chairs before him in a row. I will relate to you, seeing that you wish it," said Solario. "The story told me by Alf, the goldsmith's son, regarding the winning of the princess Hyla. Shall I proceed?" "I wish I had brought my knitting," said the queen. "But never mind." Solario picked up his tears and, gazing at them thoughtfully for a moment, cleared his throat. "This then," said he. Is the story told me by Alf regarding the rag picker and the princess? When I was sixteen years old, said Alf the fortunate, and my dear princess Hyla fourteen, the king, her father, sojourned for a time at his castle of Ventimer beside the sea, and you may be sure that the princess was with him there, for he could never bear to be parted from her for a single day. My father followed in the king's train, and I, on my part, was not to be left behind. And we lodged together, my father and myself, in the town hard by the castle, where I saw the princess every day, and daily grew in favor with her father. The windows of the king's castle looked out across the great sea, and beneath the windows of the prince's room, the tide washed up and down against the wall. One evening. As it was growing dusk, and the moon was beginning to tinge a wave here and there with silver, the princess was leaning out from her window and looking across the sea. But what I am now to tell you, I did not know at the time, as you will understand, but only later. Night fell, and still the princess leaned upon her hand and gazed out across the sea. I do not know whether she was thinking of me, but. However, in the town of Ventamere nearby, where the shore curved inward in a bay, lights began to glimmer. But the castle was dark, for the king, intending to commence at daybreak his journey back to his capital, was already abed. The princess hears a voice from the waves beneath her window. The princess, beginning to be drowsy. Reached out her hand to close the casement of her window, and as she did so, she heard a voice, a melancholy voice, not loud, as of a young man singing to himself, directly beneath her window. She started in astonishment and looked down, but she could see no one. The moonlight glittered on the sea to the very base of her wall, 
and there was no foothold anywhere for a human foot. But the voice rose nevertheless from just below her in the restless waters, and it was a singing kind of lament, pausing once to put in a few spoken words in this wise. O quivering seas that severe, O quivering, severing sea, and I would I could sing forever that sorrow that sleep in me, the soundless sundering sorrows, the shuddering secret sorrows, the sorrows secret and soundless that sleep in the soul of me, and oh the vain endeavor, the silence and the pain, the silence that now shall never sink into the sea again. That's a very good line, though, about silence sinking into the sea. It sounds a good deal like real poetry. Anyway, of such would I sing forever, and sighing forever sing. But alas, I never was clever at all that sort of thing. And though I would chant forever by quivering seas that sever, and severing seas that quiver, a ceaseless sorrowing song. I cannot sing forever, for that would be too long. The princess waited, and the voice began again. It seemed farther out on the water now, as if the singer were moving out to sea. The words appeared to her to be so strange that she never forgot them, and I am able to repeat them to you precisely as she gave them to me afterward. O oh, weary the sea's commotion, and weary the sea's tides fret, the fretful tides of the ocean. How weary and how wet, the humid, hateful ocean, the heedless, heedless ocean, the ocean huge and humid that always will be wet. If I could only once get drolly dry, just for a single day. It makes me weary the way they go on about a life on the ocean wave. I only wish they had to live in it all the time. And oh, for a seat on the settle, beside the ingle nook, and oh, for the steaming kettle, and oh, for a human cook. I hear on the soft breeze sighing, the sorrowful soft breeze dying. I hear as it sighs and rustles. The music of bacon frying, and oh, I long to be free. If I could only get ashore on two feet for just one hour, I know where I'd go. I know a good warm tavern where. Oh dear, I could only be free for a diet of fish and mussels, of cold raw fish and mussels. Did never agree with me. The voice moved off across the sea and died away in the distance. Dear me," said the queen, "what an extraordinary song, and so sad too." Never mind, grandmother," said Bojan. "Please let him go on with his story." Yes, yes, of course," said the queen. "Let the poor man go on with his story. I wonder how he remembers all those words." I'm sure I never could have remembered them. I've a very poor memory for songs myself. It's different with the king. I declare he never forgets anything. I remember there was a minstrel came to the castle once, and after he was gone, the king repeated word for word, 
Please, grandmother, said Beaujon. What is it, my dear? Solario is waiting to go on with his story. So he is, said the queen. I think it's a very pretty story indeed. I wonder how it ends. Go on, cried Beaujon, and Solario proceeded. The princess lingered, hoping to hear the voice again, but it came no more. She turned back into her room and lit the lamp, which hung from the center of the ceiling. She stood before her mirror with the lamp at her back, and as she raised her hand to unfasten the pearl necklace which she wore, she glanced at the wall beside the mirror. Her shadow, thrown by the lamp, stood right against the wall, and at that moment she saw something which caused her to stiffen with terror. The princess sees the shadow of an old woman. Through the crack of her closed door at the right of her shadow, another shadow was oozing and spreading itself across the wall towards her own. It took shape and paused for a moment. It was the shadow of a bent old woman stooping under a heavy bag and holding out in one hand a kind of poker with a hook at the end. The princess held her breath. The stooping shadow stole slowly along the wall and touched the princess's shadow with its poker. Instantly, the princess's shadow began to move toward the otter, and the otter began to back away. The strange shadow reached the door and slipped into the crack. The princess's shadow followed and slipped into the crack after it. They were gone, and only the blank surface of the wall remained. The princess tried to move, but she could not stir. She tried to cry out, but she could not speak. She stood there in the lamplight before her mirror, with one hand upraised as if to unfasten her necklace. The minutes passed, and she did not move. She heard the splashing of the tide outside. A clock struck the hour. There was no other sound. Hours passed. And still she stood with hand raised to her neck before the mirror. She heard the clock strike twelve, and on the twelfth stroke, her door swung slowly open. A midnight visit from a one-armed old man. In the doorway stood an old man, a spare old man, with long white hair and beard, and bright blue eyes in a rosy face. His blue gown, spangled with silver stars, lacked one sleeve, the right. He had only one arm, and that the left. The princess felt somehow that she was glad he had come. He stepped quickly to her side, and smiling kindly, he took down her hand from her neck. She felt a pleasant warmth at his touch, and she sighed with relief. He kept her hand in his and drew her toward the door. She had no wish to resist him. She followed quietly, and together they passed out of the room into the dark hall. At daybreak, when the king was ready to depart, there was a great to do. The princess was nowhere to be found. Her lamp was still burning, and her bed had not been slept in. The king was beside himself, and the castle was in a turmoil. 
searchers were sent in every direction all the bells in the town were set to ringing and criers went about the street proclaiming a reward my father and myself hastened to the castle and i knelt before the king and begged his special leave to seek the princess on my own account i knew nothing save that she had vanished in the night but i resolved that i would find her and i did not doubt of my success go said the king and good fortune attend you if you bring her back no reward will i refuse you even to the hand of my dear child herself make haste and do not return alone alp seeking the princess sits down by the seashore all that morning i ran about the town seeking her in every quarter but nowhere was any trace of her to be found i came back in the afternoon to the seashore near the castle there to ponder what i had best do next trudging along a strip of sand under a bluff beside the sea i came to a large rock which rose up out of the water at the beach's edge and climbing up on it i seated myself on a narrow shelf and bared my head to the breeze i had sat thus only a moment when i heard a voice from the other side of the rock a melancholy voice not loud as of a young man singing to himself and it was singing a mournful song pausing now and then to speak in ordinary tones i remembered the words very well and they were these i dream in my deep-sea cavern of many a bosky copse i dream of a cosy tavern and a couple of mutton shops for even the stocks have ghoul and even the sheep have corn but me it is too too cruel alas that i ever was born it's too cruel that's what it is it isn't right there's no justice in it and i'm sick of it that's what i am oh sorrow too deep to utter oh midnight hour of the soul if there only were bread and butter or something warm in a bowl i don't care what i'm so sick of raw fish i believe i could even stand stewed rhubarb oh sea so ceasingly sloshing oh emblem of peace and hope but is utterly useless for washing and oh how i yearn for soap i seek in my cavern's enclosure to talk with the fishes but they maintaining the strictest composure have simply nothing to say proud heart you are left unheeded alone with your grief and your ache when all that is really needed is just a mere trifle of cake not fish cake not that chocolate cake three layers with walnuts on top and in between sing on proud heart though breaking with every harmonious strain and physic be not worth the taking for your description of pain sing on though it be not forever forever and a day not that there's any sense in adding on a day to forever it's long enough in all conscience without that however i wish i could sing forever to pass the dull time away and could i be endlessly clever and make me an endless song 
I would sing of my sorrow forever. I would, were it not so long. The voice gave a great sigh, and the singing ceased. I used to make up little rhymes when I was a girl," said the queen, "and very pretty little rhymes they were too, or at least your grandmother, Dorabel, used to say so. But dear me, I never could remember verses, no matter how hard I tried, never. Yes, yes, grandmother," said Bojan. "Go on, Solario. Now the king was different." He could remember them, but he couldn't make them up, and I could make them up, but I couldn't remember them. <laughs> dear, dear, when I think of it. Grandmother said, "Bojan, Solario is waiting to go on." So he is," said the queen. "I never liked sad stories when I was a girl, for they always made me cry. But this one may turn out better than I expected." I really think you are doing very nicely, Soralio. I always say that no matter how poorly one makes out, he ought to be praised if he is doing his best. Go on," cried Bojan, and Solario proceeded. When the singing ceased, said Alp, I climbed noiselessly around the rock to the other side and looked down. An interview with a talking seal. A fat seal was lying below me on a ledge of the rock, just out of the water. The creature raised his head and gazed up at me with his big, soft eyes. I could have sworn the voice was here," said I, half aloud. "Are you speaking to me?" said the seal. I assure you, I jumped in amazement. "What?" I said. "Was it you?" Well," said the seal. "There's nobody else here, is there?" "Of all things," said I, "a talking seal. I never heard of such a. I suppose I haven't any right to talk, just because I haven't any legs and I have to live in a horrible sealskin. I suppose I'm not even to utter a word. Is that it? Oh yes, I dare say. I suppose so. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend." I suppose not. Anyway, you'd better not stand there quarrelling with me all day if you ever expect to find the princess. Oh, do you know anything about her? Tell me quick. Yes, I do. I know a little about her. I know where she is. The rag picker's shadow came last night and fetched away the princess's shadow because the rag picker needed the princess's shadow to protect her against the people. Everybody is afraid of shadows. I suppose you know that. And then the one-armed sorcerer took away the princess. And what he's going to do with her, I don't know. But you better find out. Are you ready to go? Yes, yes, I'm ready. I'll go anywhere. Tell me where. You talk brave enough. The question is, do you act as brave as you talk? Do you mind getting half drowned? No, no, I mind nothing. Tell me what I must do. Sounds very brave indeed. Are you afraid of shadows? Of course not. Then you are the only person in these parts who isn't. Where you are going, they are all afraid of shadows. 
and that's how the rag picker protects herself against the people with shadows. And so you're not afraid of them. Well, well. I'm not afraid of anything. Tell me what to do. So, pretty brave. All right, I'll take you there myself. Take off your coat and shoes. I took off my shoes, stockings, and coat. The seal hunched himself down into the water and lay there with his head resting on the rock. Now, said he, come down here and lie on my back and hold on tight and don't get in the way of my flippers. I hesitated for a moment at the idea of lying down in the water on the back of a seal, but I came down the rock and stretched myself out on his back and clung to him with my arms and legs as well as I could. A sea journey on the back of a seal. Hold on tight, said the seal, and darted off across the sea so suddenly that I lost my grip and fell off into the water. But he swam under me, and I was soon on his back once more, none the worse. What's the matter? said the seal. Haven't you any strength? I suppose I'll have to go slower. He glided slowly and smoothly over the long swells, and as soon as I got used to it, I found that it was really wonderful sport. We followed the shoreline quite around the island to its opposite side, and then the seal made straight for the open sea. The shore faded away behind us, and at last it was gone. Hours passed, and I grew stiff and cold. I slipped off the seal's back now and then for the exercise of swimming. It was excessively difficult to hold on to his slippery skin, and I ached so painfully with the strain that I feared at last that I should have to let go for good, and I was about to give up when I saw afar off on the horizon what looked like land. The seal swam faster. I took new courage and clung to him tighter. It was indeed land evidently an island, and as we came close to it I could make out in its side a deep cove, backed with dark woody hills and flanked on either side by rocky cliffs. Fishing boats of all sizes were moored in the cove, and a large village straggled up the hillside behind. The seal glided into the smooth water between the cliffs and slid up against the sand of the beach at the foot of the village. It was just twilight. I jumped to my feet and stretched my numb and aching limbs, gazing with curiosity at the nearby houses. I turned round at the sound of the seal's voice. Can you get me a custard pie? said the seal. What? I said in astonishment. There's a pasty cook in the village. I'll wait for you here. Mince pie'll do, if they're out of custard. I hastened away into the village without saying anything more. The Village of Storks It was a large village, and there were a good many streets, and before I found the pasty cook's shop, I paused to look at the strange collection of birds which adorned the housetops. On nearly every chimney or ridgepole stood a stork, and on some were two or three, and even more, young stalks, all of them judging by their size. I noticed, 
as I passed the villagers in the street that their faces were very sad, and I thought it singular that although I saw many grown people, I met no children and heard no children's voice. The pasty cook, when I found him, proved to have the saddest face of all, and his wife looked as if she had been weeping, and there were on the pasty cook's housetop no less than five small storks. When I mentioned that I want a custard pie for a seal, the pasty cook handed over the pie to me without any appearance of surprise and without accepting any payment. I hurried back to the beach and sat down before the seal and held the custard pie while the hungry creature ate it. Did you ever eat raw fish? said he. I should say not, said I. It's awful, said the seal. Is positively petrifying. You know I wasn't always a seal. Custard pie always used to do me more good than anything else. Tell me who you are, said I, and who the rat picker is. There's no time now, said the seal. You'd better be going. The people here would like to kill the rat picker if they could, but they're afraid of the shadows. She's afraid of the people. And the people are afraid of the shadows, and she's more afraid of the one-armed sorcerer than anybody else. So between you and me, I think she's wrong about it, because he seems to be a pretty decent sort of old chap, and I rather believe he'd like to help her if she wasn't so afraid of him. But of course you can't help a person who's afraid of you. All mixed up, isn't it? I don't understand a word of it," said I. "Brave people are always stupid," said the seal. And with this, he wriggled himself off into the water, and I saw his head going back and forth slowly from side to side across the cove. I turned and went into the village. It was now nearly dark. As I came toward the pasty cook's shop again, the village crier came walking down the street, ringing a bell and calling out. Over and over again, seven o'clock and time for supper. Seven o'clock and time for supper. As the crier passed by, the storks flapped their wings and flew down from the housetops, and took their stand in a row before their houses, along the curbs. And wherever a stork stood before a house, a woman came out with a bow in hand. When I reached the pasty cook's shop. The pastry cook wife was kneeling on the sidewalk before the five little storks, feeding them gruel out of a bowl with a long spoon. I observed that all along the street, women were feeding the storks in the same way, but again I noticed that there were no children. I walked on, watching in every street the feeding of the storks, and looking up for some sign of the princess. I observed at last a gilded wooden arm and hand holding a lantern, projecting from the front wall of a house a little in advance. And before this house, at the curb, a single stork was standing, and an old man, one-armed, wearing white hair and beard, and dressed in a blue gown with silver stars, was sitting before the stork, feeding it with a long spoon from a bowl in his lap. Around the stork's neck hung a pearl necklace. Wondering whether I had ever seen that necklace before, 
I passed behind the old man, and as I did so, the stork fixed its eyes on me and ruffled its feather in agitation. I had no sooner gone by than there was a great fluttering among all the storks, and I observed, coming toward me down the street, a bent old woman stooping under a bulging bag and holding out what appears to be a poker with a hook at the end. She was ragged and decrepit, and there was a gleam in her eye which seemed to me to be more of terror than anything. She gazed intently at the stork with the necklace and then passed on down the street. All the storks, at sight of her, suddenly flew up onto the housetops, and all the people, or nearly all, went hurriedly indoors. As I turned to follow her with my eyes, I saw that the stork with the necklace was perched up on the ridgepole, and that the old one-armed man was gone. End of section 6 The Rat Picker and the Princess Part 1 Recorded by Kolada